You're listening to the Small Town Monsters Broadcasting Network. You can find out more about this and other network shows, as well as Small Town Monsters films, books, our upcoming Kickstarter campaign, and much more at smalltownmonsters.com. Good evening, folks. Welcome back to a special Sunday edition of STM Live. We haven't done one of these on a Sunday in a while. Uh, but there is so much going on in the Small Town Monsters universe right now. We want to make sure everything is getting talked about and that you guys have a chance to ask questions about everything that's happening. So as always, please do drop your questions and comments in the chat. Hello to all of our regular viewers. I'm seeing several familiar names in the chat already. It's great to see you guys. Hello to anyone who's tuning in for the first time. Um, and also, if you're just walking past a room where someone is watching this, this is for you. You know who you are. Uh, I hope everyone's had a great Super Bowl Sunday. Someone asked me this morning who I was uh, rooting for, and I panicked and said Taylor Swift. So that's where I'm at on that. Uh, a couple of reminders before we get to the very important and interesting conversation that I'm excited to have tonight. The Small Town Monsters Kickstarter for 2024 is currently underway. We are ridiculously, tremendously grateful to every one of you for helping us to hit 100% of our base funded goal. So next is to get us to that first stretch goal so that we can get uh, Wow, I just forgot the name of the movie. Cursed Waters, Creature of Lake Okanagan, added on as a stretch reward for you guys. So check that out and and cannot help but mention, as always, that we do have an episode of The Lore You Know available on your favorite podcasting platform featuring Nikki Clement. That's been up for just a little under a week now. So check that one out. All right. So the man that you're all here to see, you know him, you love him. His beard makes me uh, inspired and also afraid, Mr. Alex Petikov. Oh, or maybe not. Maybe it's this green creature. Oh, 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 hi, guys. Yes, I, I, my apologies. This is actually a little miniature baby figure. That looked way bigger when you were holding it up to it the looks camera. looks pretty scary, right? So here's another Aaron one. Aaron said. <laughs> so these are actually, uh, oh, I can't do it with the camera. These are actually, I was just in Louisiana, where it's Mardi Gras season, and this is oh, what they put in the king cake. You know, they have this cake called a king cake, and for some reason... Those are delicious. They're yeah. very good. I had a cheesecake one, and for some reason, they come with these little plastic babies in them. So I just thought that would be a little funny, funny little intro. I have like a collection of them here that's just saying that I ate too much king cake, but uh, we'll just <laughs> we'll, we'll pretend that didn't happen. But, uh, well, you know, you had the experience. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, <laughs> awesome to be back here with you, man. I mean, I know it's Super Bowl right now, but this is way more fun than watching the Super Bowl. No offense yeah. to anybody, but I've never know. been a sports guy. Um, so, you know, I prefer playing them over watching them overall. I've never been huge on football, though. I but do that either, unless it's like the European football, which is just soccer. So that's that. Yeah. That I'm for. But uh, yeah, I, I, and there's nobody really. If the Patriots were at least in, you know, because I'm from New England, I'd probably. I'd probably be watching that. I know that's probably going to offend some people. Patriots, oh, watch out, right? But uh, they haven't, <laughs> since Brady left, they haven't really been worth talking about. So <laughs> I used to teach sales classes at my old job. I would tell people there's two things you never talk about, or three things politics, religion, and sports. Just don't. Yeah, right. <laughs> They're very polarizing. <laughs> well, apparently, Bigfoot and uh, paranormal stuff is now, too, right? It's like... It is. <laughs> and we chose to do that. <laughs> right, right, right. Because there's so much more money in in this right <laughs> so well i'm really excited for this conversation tonight alex i know just from watching the comments from a lot of our viewers over the last six months that they are very excited because we've gotten regular questions about you know the content of this episode so yeah um, it's definitely <clears throat> definitely a lot of stuff that people ask about a lot so 
Yeah, yeah. It was good reason, which is why you did an episode on it. So um, I do have a few. Oh, so I was just going to say, maybe we're getting a lot more of our international viewers tonight because they're not watching the Super Bowl. Saw Canada popped up. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we'll we have Valerie watching from Ontario, Canada. Hi, Valerie. I'm seeing people from all over the map as I scroll. Todd Squatch. Here. I'm surprised he's not watching. Maybe they've got it on on like the a separate window or something. Yeah. You know? What's up, party people? Multitasking. Uh, but yes, I do have a couple questions for you, Alex. I really want to hear from our audience tonight, but there's a few things I'm really curious about. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the Kenai Peninsula, what it is, where it is, etc.? Yeah, the Kenai Peninsula is uh, basically just a peninsula that's part of the state of Alaska. And I think it kind of embodies the state of Alaska, probably more than any other region of Alaska. I mean, it's a Alaska is a gigantic place, I and mean, you really don't understand the scale unless you've been there, flown there, drove and drove there, whatever. The Kenai Peninsula, as was talked about in the episode, is kind of described as the uh, Alaska's playground. It's got all, and I think that's what I tried to highlight in the episode. It's got a lot of the variety of habitats you find throughout the rest of the state. So the coastal region, it's uh, these temperate rainforests and these very rugged mountains. When you get towards the interior, you almost have like a tundra type environment that you might find in northern Alaska. So southeast Alaska, where the capital is, Juneau, is, is mountains and rainforest. So you kind of have a little bit of that in the Kenai Peninsula. You go up to, say, Fairbanks or Denali National Park, and you get tundra and some mountains, rolling hills. You have that in the central part of the Kenai Peninsula. So to my mind, it was kind of, it's always been a place that sort of exemplified, mini, it's like Alaska scaled down into a little... 200 mile peninsula and the habitat wow. there is absolutely incredible. It's got some of the most dramatic scenery in the state, places like the Kenai Fjords National Park, all that footage of those giant glaciers crumbling into the ocean, that stuff that you see in the Kenai Peninsula, uh, places like Homer, home, the halibut fishing capital of the world, the town of Seward, which is a very scenic place. And because it's so close to Anchorage, it's only a you know, three hour drive to Seward, I think around four to Homer, you have a lot of accessibility to Anchorage, which is the most accessible part of Alaska. So it's a very rugged peninsula, but most of it is actually protected land in the Kenai National Wildlife Refuge. I think it was like over 2 million acres. So it's an absolutely very rugged peninsula. It's got record brown bear in that area, tons of moose, uh, Sitka blacktail deer, mountain goats, uh, cheese, just so much. If you've seen, obviously, as I talked about in that episode, Area A, so the Alaskan coastal Sasquatch and Dark Coast. A lot of that wildlife you see out there, the humpback whales, orcas, seals, sea lions. It's just got a lot of history and a lot of wildlife in that one particular region. I think, like I said, in my mind, it's it's like Alaska scaled down into an area that's about the size of Maine for a kind of size comparison. And that, of course, is just a small, very small yeah. corner of Alaska. But it, I think it exemplifies a lot of what people think about Alaska, the Kenai Peninsula. Some of the vi imagery from there is usually what kind of comes to mind. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I'm curious about, obviously, one of the, there's a lot of big things in this episode. Like, this is not a small episode. Like, <laughs> that's part of the reason we did a special episode of this show to make sure we had a chance to talk about it. But I know one of the things that generated some buzz that people were really excited about is seeing Les Stroud in this yeah. one. So you got to tell us how that came about, because that had to be, I just imagine that was an interesting journey, getting him on camera. Yeah, for sure. For me, it was interesting because... Uh... You know, and I'll be honest, like the Les Stroud is somebody that's a huge influence to me as a filmmaker. I, I mean, I was 
I was a kid basically when his show first started. You know, I was in elementary school, middle school, high school, when his original show, Survivor Man, was going. And it was yeah. just so cool. I mean, if you were a kid or a teen in the 2000s, late 2000s, you knew about Survivor Man. I mean, you were mm -hmm. probably watching it on Discovery. It's just so cool, right? He's out there in all these environments. And he did this Alaska episode. And I remember, so again, so that the, the style, the, the way he goes about his stuff really has influenced a bit of my style. I like that. I call, it, I call it run and gun filmmaking style. You're out there filming yourself, you know, using cameras to film you doing stuff in the bush. I mean, he was absolutely kind of instrumental in pioneering that kind of style of filmmaking in general. Um, and I remember vividly, man, it must have been 2000. It was either somewhere between 2009 to 11, around there. That I And it was kind of the early days of YouTube when there was an interview that came out with Les on the Opie and Anthony show, which was just a radio show. It was like one of those shock jock shows, you know, the jokester guys. And they got him on there, you know, he's becoming a celebrity. And they jokingly ask him about, hey, do you believe in Bigfoot? And he's like, well, I have some stories. And he tells this incredible story from, which happened to be from the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. Uh, and that's the first time I heard it. I remember hearing that. And then it wasn't until years later, he started doing his own Bigfoot Survivor Man series. And I, I was, you know, a little bit disappointed with later on with some of the people he had on there, people like Todd Standing and some other characters that I think are less than savory in the Bigfoot world. And I'll leave it at that. Um, but, you know, I think it was the, the approach was great. I mean, he did some great episodes on there. One where he went to Willow Creek in particular, I thought was pretty interesting. He kind of was out there alone in the Northern California countryside. That was pretty cool. So how he got involved in this episode is basically a friend of mine, Tim Halloran. He has a show called The Bigfoot Influencers. It's actually mm -hmm. a book, too. I was going to say, he's got a book out now, too. Which yeah, is... he's got, I think, and he's working on a second one. And I had yeah. done some stuff for his second book. And we were just kind of talking afterwards. And at some, at some point, he brought up Les Stroud, and we were talking about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, Les, I've always wanted to kind of talk to him. And uh, he's like, well, you know, I could I could help you. And then he he had basically helped me talk to Les. And I got scheduled with Les to do an interview. And unfortunately, he couldn't be in person or anything. That's a lot to a lot of logistics, especially towards the holiday. This was in November uh, that I did the interview. So we did like an over-the-computer interview for about 45 minutes. And then what you see in the episode is basically part of that. I asked him some other questions that might be in future episodes. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But uh, there was we had like a broad ranging conversation, mostly about that encounter in Alaska. That's that was my primary interest. I didn't touch upon really his Survivor Man Bigfoot show. Mm -hmm. I just touched on that initial encounter because at the time, especially, what really intrigued me was, uh, you know, he's somebody that wasn't interested in Bigfoot. He was just out there doing his show. Uh, and he was pretty legit from from all accounts. You know, he's out there really doing this survival kind of stuff. And there's an interesting kind of connection with Area A. When we were doing our filming out there, the property owner, Scott, had told some of the first stuff he had had happen after building that cabin. He related it to a uh, local boat captain he had chartered to help him move some of the lumber and the transport some of that stuff out to the location because, you know, it takes a larger boat to do that. So he related some of these experiences to this guy he knew who happened to do this boat charter thing. And he said, well, it sounds like you're experiencing Sasquatch activity. And Scott's thinking, oh, my God, why would you say that? Like, this is this is serious. We're getting rocks thrown at us. Like, this is not a joke. He's like, no, no, I'm, I'm serious. And he told him a story about, you You know, the guy Les Stroud, the Survivor Man? He said, yeah, I do. He said, well, I was contracted by the network or the production company that Les Stroud had 
to transport him. Like before they send him out on that journey where he was solo, they go around and do some B-roll. They film him in front of, in front of some glaciers, stuff that kind of filler for the episode, that sort of thing. And then they really drop him off. He's like, we, we found the location, we dropped him off. They send him off. The crew all goes back to town. None of them go out in the woods with him. It's not like he's got camera guys hiding in the woods with him. He's legitimately out there. And they said after they picked him up, he just looked very kind of like he hadn't slept very much. And then he um, had started kind of saying something about, you know, what is the possibility something like a Sasquatch exists and that sort of thing. So that's and then it was interesting because I was able then when when Scott, the cabin owner, had told me this relay the story to me i went back and rewatched that les stroud episode and lo and behold it's the same boat like scott had sent me some pictures of the guy helping him take out some of that lumber and you, i forget it was like janet may or something was the name of the boat and then in in the les stroud episode they happen to show a shot of the boat as he's leaving and it says the same boat same boat so i was like oh that's kind of a direct connection i thought that was cool so for me it was interesting then to be able to talk to les obviously about the encounter having that kind of connection to their area a and I just felt it it felt appropriate to put it in an episode all about the Kenai Peninsula because yeah. that area, I think, for Alaska context, has some of the most famous Bigfoot stories, really. I mean, like the Port Chatham stuff. I'm sure we're going to get into that, but that is basically the most famous Bigfoot incident or one of the most famous stories that's up there with the Bauman story or the Albert Osman story, Ruby Creek, a lot of these historical incidents. That's one that's really captivated a lot of attention lately. And that's virtually the same habitat as the place where Les had his encounter of with whatever it was, and he won't tell you it's Sasquatch. He never even said that in the interview. You know, he says, I don't know what it was. And basing it off of experience with other animals, I don't know. And then obviously Area A is a similar habitat. It's these really rugged areas. And Chuk in the episode talks about the um, kind of the, the coastal habitat you drive by, and you're like, nobody lives there. Nobody can live there. It's just in some of these areas, is just straight up. And there's mountains and forests at the top. You can't really get up there unless you have like a helicopter or you're a straight up rock climber. I mean, it's a very fascinating area. So yeah, the whole Les Stroud thing was cool. It was just, it was awesome to be able to include him in that sort of episode and just cover the entire Kenai Peninsula in terms of some of the stories and the uh, encounters. Yeah. Well, Les Stroud provides a really interesting example of a witness to some of this possible Sasquatch activity. Because a lot of times when people report these stories, you know, you start digging into it and investigating. One of the questions you ask is, okay, well, what's this person's background? You know, right. what's their familiarity with the wilderness and with wildlife? We already know what Les Stroud has been doing right. for the last 20 years because you and I have been watching it on TV, you know. So, right. He and, knows his stuff. I think that's the yeah. kind of like, and it, it, you know, that increases the the interest, I think, in that type of a story, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, say say we ever want about how he covered that Bigfoot series again. I take, you know, I have some not issues with it, but you know, I wish there were uh, some other kind of ways he could have covered that too. Some of the people, I guess, he went out with are a little disappointing, but that's you know, it's entirely his choice, not mine. I'm just you know giving my opinion on it, but that I don't think that detracts from that initial kind of story and that encounter because that happened way before he ever did any like shows specifically about it but um yeah he has he definitely has an interest in it seeing from when i talked to him and uh i think i think it just fit really well with you know the other stuff like with what larry beans baxter was talking about and you know some of the places he's been and larry's somebody that has arguably been to more alleged hot spots and sighting zones on the kenai pencil than basically anyone in the world yeah because he's extensively been to area a since even before we got a chance to go there he's been going out there he was on uh, one of the first organized expeditions to port chatham he's been there multiple times 
Uh, and then the rest of the Kenai Peninsula, you know, he was a former police officer, or retired police officer rather, in Homer. So he's just had reports up and down the peninsula. And, you know, he's like one of the main guys there investigating on the Kenai Peninsula. There isn't really too many other folks. So, yeah, his insight is always really interesting. For sure. It's great to see him in this episode. I tried to get him for this show as well, but he is out of the country. Yes. So. <laughs> he is abroad. <laughs> <laughs> he's enjoying some warm weather. Yeah. Yeah. Well deserved for sure. Oh, yeah. We I think some... if you live in Alaska, you need that for your sanity. Even Chuk was telling me, he's like, I need to leave Alaska at least once or twice in the winter to retain my sanity. And he's a native Alaskan. He grew up there. So it tells yeah. you about that. <laughs> Every time I, I interview, you know, or talk to someone from Alaska or on the lore, you know, we've had a couple guests from Alaska, just hearing right. what life is like about up there. I just gained so much respect for that person. It's intense. I don't think I could do it. Or if yeah. I could, I don't, I don't want to. You know. I mean, it's it's a beautiful place, and I think the times I've been up there, it's usually been late spring into summer. So that's a totally different Alaska than right now in February, where it's just pretty brutal and dark all the time. It's a very different place. So I think I have a little bit of a rosy colored uh vision of alaska based on when i was there right <laughs> yeah sure and you're you're cut out for that sort of work so i see that but <laughs> right but even i even i was like i don't know if i'd be able to live up there i mean I, you know and i live in I live in here in the northeast it's uh, cold and snowy but well, i think alaska is just way more intense yeah, for sure we do have a few comments and questions from our audience um i do want to shout out our two newest squad members uh richard and go for a walk today love that username that's a great uh, great name yeah great name great advice thank you for joining the squad Welcome. you make what we do possible so thank you um we have a question from our friend grant who is not courtney uh <laughs> if you get that joke thank you you've been hanging out with us for a long time uh grant says will rebecca slick be appearing at monster fest on june 28th and 29th in canton ohio shameless plug yet again uh grant thank you for reminding us about monster fest and uh i don't know We'll have to ask her next time we can get her on the show here. So, or actually come to monster fest to find out. <laughs> I'm not going to ask her. Good idea. Uh, <laughs> SoCal Squatch says, and this came in earlier when we were talking about the Super Bowl. Uh, nope. I like racing, not stick and ball sports, Alex. That's, that's a good, so, good answer. I appreciate that, Todd. I appreciate you. That's yeah. a good, good answer. I thought I was pretty sure that was Todd. Yeah. Uh, Angel Raven 444 says I'd watch football. If the D uh, D line is that defensive <laughs> line. Is that what that means? Yeah. I believe so. The D, if the D line were Sasquatches, I'm with you on that. That would be very entertaining. Yeah, I mean, imagine you get like Sasquatches on one side and gorillas on the other. Who who would win, right? I mean, it's like that's the whole thing. Yeah, I think I'd go Team Sasquatch. I'll, I think they got more. Clearly, they got more intelligence, maybe than gorillas, because the brute strength is is probably in both the both teams. But yeah, interesting. That's how we solve this whole thing. We put out a draft for Bigfoot for football. <laughs> People get very excited about this thing called the draft. I right. understand. So, and Mr. Scribbles uh, says that my fantasy football team is named Bigfoot, and I'm there for that. There as we well. go. We're, so, we're we're starting a trend here. Yeah, we're gonna make this happen, guys. This that's is gonna the, be awesome. Cryptid fantasy football. That's the next Kickstarter, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not video video games. Yeah, we're going down some interesting paths here. I just start a Kickstarter without telling Seth. <laughs> uh, we have a new viewer tonight, Ronazi. Hello from MA, tuning in for the first time, but have been watching on my TV from a guest account. Well, welcome. Cool. Pleasure to have. Sorry you to for... hear you're in Massachusetts, but uh, I kid, I kid. I'm as your northern <laughs> neighbor here in New Hampshire. We we love to give you guys down uh, in the flatlands a little a little riff. So. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. 
Uh, we have an interesting, <coughs> excuse me, guys. My, my son gave me a cold. I'm blaming him. Uh, <coughs> Silver Shark says, hello, everyone. I'm from Louisiana, Missouri. My family, the Harrisons, are the ones that saw Momo the Missouri monster. I can look out my window right now and see the hill where it happened. And wow. then they follow right, and then they follow up by saying, "I'm thinking about doing videos." Well, I'm just going to throw this out there, Silver Shark. I think that's a great idea. Show uh, the location. That's a really historic area. I mean, historic, you know, in the Bigfoot sense. What yes. is it, Marzolf Hill, something like that? I think it was called. But yeah, Momo. I mean, that's uh, it's obviously one of those cool kind of high strangeness cases from back in the day. So yeah, it's a that's huge pretty one. Neat. I would just put this out there to anybody. If you're thinking about getting into the paranormal, cryptozoology, creative space, just do it. Just do it. Make something. Write something. We'll we'll watch it. So, just saying. I think that's important. Uh, our friend BH is back. Good to see you, friend. Hi, Aaron. Hi, buds. I have a question for Alex. Do you think there could be a subspecies of Sask? I believe that's an abbreviation for Sasquatch. Depending <laughs> <laughs> depending on the location, I ask because Stroud's description of a creature up in the trees caught my interest. That's a good question. I have no idea. Uh, maybe. I mean, I imagine personally, this is my theory. I'm not the originator of it, uh, but I think it kind of regional adaptation makes sense. I think they probably, I would guess they're the same creatures, but like you imagine a Sasquatch in Alaska maybe is a little bit different than one that's found somewhere in the swamps of the South, right? If mm -hmm. we're talking just, there's like a black bear found in Alaska is going to be different than one in Florida. There's going to be size difference adaptations. That's what I would imagine. But um, yeah, that de that detail kind of surprised me. I don't know if I don't rem I don't recall less sharing the part about the tree thing. I probably don't remember because again, that original Opie and Anthony interview was like almost two decades ago at this point. So uh, that's just a detail I don't recall him telling. But I mean, he said it was sounded like it was up in the tree, and then it kind of came crashing down, uh, which I think is interesting. And there are reports. I mean, there's even reports in Alaska of Sasquatches being seen in trees. Or, you know, I imagine like a smaller juvenile creature. I've heard some reports in certain areas. Pennsylvania, there's a guy interviewed a few years ago who had so what he claims is one jumped out of the tree behind him. And he could hear it running and kind of got out of the area. And then I think it was Alabama I've heard of some sightings. So, I mean, if you think about it, humans climb into trees, right? Like some humans do. I don't imagine some gigantic Sasquatch being able to go up far into a tree. But imagine like a younger, smaller, more agile creature. I mean... We, we climb in trees when we're younger, right? Because it's mm -hmm. easier. Once you get larger, it's kind of more difficult. So yeah, I could see it happening, but I don't know if that would indicate a different species or subspecies. I mean, again, I have no idea. None of us really do. So it's yeah. all just uh, speculation. I, th I think that's an interesting, I feel like I say this every show. I think that's a interesting line of speculation Yeah, because <laughs> you see that in other species, you know, like coyotes in one part of the country will look different than yeah, coyotes exactly. in another part. Squirrels, rats, things like that. Panthers, so. mountain lions. Yeah. There's a lot of different regional stuff. That's just what we're dealing with is some kind of a creature. Um, and just the descriptions seem to be different in the South as they are maybe to like the Pacific Northwest or the Appalachians. They seem to have slight differences at least from in my experience. Yeah. That's interesting. Appreciate that question, BH. Thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you mentioned Florida a second ago, so I think that's a great transition into this next question from uh, Harvest Mary Moon. Good to see you, Harvest Mary Moon. Uh, I'm curious, have you been to hurricane-prone areas before hurricanes come in? In eastern North Carolina, we hear a lot of weird grunts. I mm. spent, uh, I actually grew up in central Florida, 
Um, so I'm really interested to hear the answer to this question. And, and I think it's something we should try, but please go right ahead. I mean, honestly, I have not spent any time anywhere near when a hurricane was going on. I've been to places that have had hurricane damage. I mean, I was just in New Orleans and Louisiana and, you know, we're still almost 20 years later talking about the effects of Katrina almost every day. I mean, different you, places I went to, it's like that still is a huge thing 20 years later because it's such if a you big drive, catastrophe. If you drive to the right part of town in New Orleans, you can still see the water line on yeah. some buildings. Oh, even I was further yeah. south of New Orleans. I was in the Honey Island Swamp. I mean, still, they talk about it all the time as the devastation was just so massive everywhere, whether it be the city or even like the Honey Island Swamp. Much of that environment was torn apart by the by the hurricane there. So, yeah, I haven't spent too much time in areas right before a hurricane's going to happen. Maybe, Aaron, you obviously sounds like you have. So I don't know if you have quite a bit to say (laughs) (laughs) whether whether or not you wanted to. Sounds like. (laughs) Yeah, it's when you grow up in Florida and we live smack dab in the middle because my dad worked out of Cape Canaveral. You hurricane evacuations are just kind of a thing like you either do or plan to at least every other year whether you do or not just depends on the severity of the storm um but i was not a sasquatch researcher at that time in my life Um, (laughs) but you know i mean it might even be something to start looking into just start asking people that live in that area as a place to start you know Hmm. which it looks like we have someone right here so thank you harvest mary moon you can send an email to aaron at smalltownmonsters.com if you'd like to share a little more about that i'd definitely love to hear about it yeah, let us know. Yeah. Yes. Uh, our friend Metallica4567, always good to see you as well, Metallica, says, the Port Chatham story is intriguing. Alex, do you think Sasquatch could be responsible for missing people in other areas? It's very intriguing. It's a very intriguing story. And I think it's been, unfortunately, extremely sensationalized in uh, recent years, certain TV shows, that sort of thing. But uh, that question, I don't know. That's obviously a question a lot of people ask. I personally don't think it would be very common. I don't imagine so. If these things, their MO is stay away from people for the most part, other than some maybe chance sightings that are kind of the bulk of sightings are accidental or you know people camping and have something happen. Um, I imagine these things would probably be intelligent enough to know that, hey, if I kidnap or kill a person, that probably, what does that lead to? More people. You know, a search and rescue party or this or that, maybe like an opportunistic thing once in a blue moon. I always kind of relate the story about some of the, the native tribes in North America that have the stories of the cannibals or the, the Sasquatch kidnap their women and children. Um, all you need is maybe that to happen once and then that kind of snowballs into a story or it could just be a cautionary tale. You know, it could be, hey, uh, and this is just boogeymen scaring kids. This is something that goes on every culture just to kind of keep kids out of trouble. Especially imagine some of those tribes are living in environments with a lot of dangerous elements, places like Alaska, British Columbia, kid can walk out of the village and fall down a cliff or get lost, get eaten by a mountain lion or a pack of wolves. So saying, hey, there's this creature that's going to get you if you don't go in the woods is maybe a way of keeping the vulnerable in that in those cases, which usually would have been women and children from, you know, some sort of awful fate or just a cautionary tale to everyone. But I don't know if it's I don't think it's a major factor personally um, for missing people. I think people just go missing all the time. I have spent a lot of time in the wilderness and I've seen some of the stupidest things known to man that people have done while hiking and backpacking that, uh, it, you know, genu- genuinely made me lose faith in a certain significant population of the, in a, in a significant po- part of the human population. Like 30% of people are just too far gone. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a cynical view, but again, people just, People get lost and die and hurt all the time in the woods. And 
thinking they're macho, thinking just, oh, you know, it won't affect me. There's that good saying, the mountains will be there another day. You, you know, you won't. So, you know, I've had to back out of hikes before because of weather conditions or just things seeming too dangerous. Uh, don't be the hero. But I've seen so much stupidity. And I, I spent a lot of time hiking up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, which people underestimate. And I just saw a ridiculous amount of stupidity. And people go missing up there and get need to get rescued almost every single weekend, especially in the summer months. I mean, and during COVID, we had like an explosion of it. They were trying to stop people from coming up here because search and rescues were just I mean, three, four in a weekend. People come up from Boston and they think the mountains are great. And then they start getting snowed on in June in, you know, 5,000 plus feet. So, and they're not prepared. Like I've seen it all. So I think people just go missing a lot more frequently than maybe we want to admit it just because of, it's just irresponsibility is probably the number one killer. Unpreparedness, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, this comes up on this show a lot, but yeah. <laughs> excuse me. So sorry. We kind of underestimate as people how big the world is, yeah. you know? And how vast it is. We look at these maps and we're like, I could walk that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's again. I, I just saw the some of the most insane stuff, like people trying to hike in flip flops and other insanity. Just over the years, I backpacked a lot and hiked. Um, it just kind of shows you that I think you know. Imagine if that wasn't in as populated an area, and this person tries to do that, they just fall off a mountain and aren't seen again. I think that happens more often. Again, could this happen with the Sasquatch? Possibly, but I think it's a, a very rare kind of case. Uh, physically, I guess it could happen because people describe often seeing this thing. If it wanted to kill me, it probably could kind of thing. So mm-hmm. that's, yeah, I, I, but it's like with gorillas and chimps too. Those attacks usually don't happen very often. Yeah. They're rare before. and they're usually situational. Yeah, exactly. So again, I could see maybe every once in a while, but I think, yeah, more people, people going missing usually means more people show up to look. So that's kind of, um, I don't think an animal that wants to stay elusive would, necessarily want that or probably realizes that yeah we have a follow-up question to our conversation a moment ago about hurricane prone areas that i have to get to um, our friend travis e says i'm from melbourne florida and yes 100 percent i just found footprints at tosahatchee uh travis i'm from rockledge so i i feel you there uh you can also send an email to aaron at smalltownmonsters.com because melbourne and rockledge are basically the same town travis knows what i'm talking about so a little correlation there with the hurricane areas. That's very interesting. Uh, we have a couple just really nice comments that I thought we're, well, I decided we're going to have, we're going to talk about. Um, Harvest Mary Moon says, I've watched Small Town Monsters show of the Mothman a hundred times at least. <laughs> right in there with you. Right in That's there cool. with you. And uh, let's see, there was another really nice one here. Sarah Worley Wright says, Ohio here, just wanted to say hello. I watch STM videos on YouTube every night before bed. I've never had a squatchy experience, but I'm a believer. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Thank you, Sarah. That was very nice of you. Thanks for tuning in. Very kind. Yeah, thank you. That's awesome. Always, always appreciate that. Yeah. All right. couple more questions in here, and we're doing great on time. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm trying uh, to keep my answers so much shorter. <laughs> I usually can go off on a tangent. So. No, the more you talk, the better. I seem to be losing my voice as the show oh, no. progresses. So uh, that's okay, though. <coughs> Excuse me. Mr. Dollar Store Gloves asks, Alex, what do you think about the militaristic habits of Sasquatch going by the nesting site and the use of roving scouts to observe? I mean, I think it would make sense, right? I mean, this this obviously isn't established. We can't verify this. We can just kind of go off of that data that we have. But I think it would make sense. I mean, if you the, the kind of the MO, modus operandi of the 
subjects that we're dealing with seem to be pretty militaristic and it's a good way of describing it you're always kind of trying to keep barriers between you and them that sort of thing uh so yeah i don't i don't i guess i don't i don't disagree with that i i think it's a it makes sense kind of to keep it simply yeah simple. no that's mr dollar store gloves always has the good questions for us absolutely uh, i gotta get some dollar store gloves at some point i know they they're must... as cool as that design on there <laughs> yeah they must be great because they're recommended in this show every single week awesome <laughs> sdm live brought to you by dollar store gloves yeah right uh, let's see our friend Michael Tovar, who is, uh, watching from Austin, Texas, Alex, do you think Sasquatch migrate to warmer weather and why sightings vary across the country? Curious how Sasquatch keep warm in extreme cold. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my personal theory is just, I think, I don't, I don't imagine these things would go from like the Northeast to Florida, right? I think that's pretty improbable. There's sure there's some corridors and whatnot, but I think probably makes sense that they stay in the same general areas. I mean, if you live in some in a southern place, I guess you wouldn't have to move around as much. But I think at least in my area here in the Northeast, they probably move around in maybe slightly warmer areas, places that have year round green uh, coverage, such as, you know, cedar swamps or places with pine, a lot of pine or coniferous trees that maybe are there typically are a couple degrees warmer than other areas. Um, Places like Alaska, I mean, I, I don't know, but there seem to be sightings year round, at least from what I've understood from going up there uh, and having been told. So I think they probably follow resources. I mean, I've heard of theories like in the Rocky Mountains in the summertime, they move to higher elevations, as do some of the prey species because it's a little bit cooler up there. And then in the winter, maybe moving lower. I think it just depends on where you're at, right? What the terrain is like, what the winters are like. Um, I think it would just make sense maybe even having like a home range or going out to different areas. I think a lot of the solo sightings or most of the sightings are probably young males or juveniles that are kind of just daring or moving out, moving around on their own, looking for food or a mate or whatever. I don't know, uh, but that's obviously just kind of my, my theory on the matter, but I have no way to substantiate that. You're always very, you're always very specific and cautious with that. Like, but yeah, I because, I, because it's just, I, 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 just don't I appreciate think, that. I yeah. think that's great, but there's know. a lot, there's a lot we don't know. And I think that the speculation I think is the interesting part of it. Uh, but we, you know, obviously we can't verify it hundred percent just yet. Hopefully we'll have a chance to, and hopefully we'll know all about it, but it's like, you imagine somebody that something that lives in the say Olympic peninsula in that rainforest environment never gets too crazy cold in there. It's always pretty damp and moist. That's going to be a different maybe type of behavior than a creature that lives in Alaska or in mm -hmm. the swamps of Louisiana, right? Like there's food sources year round. It's totally different environment. So I think there's just more of a, that would, that would again, that would seem to make sense to me that there is a regional, uh, when we talk about like the subspecies thing, just adaptations based on behaviors or habitat food sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I always, always wonder about that stuff, like regional variants. Um, <clears throat> so sorry, excuse me. Michael has a follow-up comment as well. Also, would like to hear uh, the Les Stroud interview more. So there's one request for that. <laughs> yeah, like I said, there may be maybe some clips from that in a future episode. <laughs> I don't know yet, but I do have more stuff that you know he had said that wasn't on the episode because it wasn't directly relevant to the what was going on in that film. Yeah, very cool. Uh, Dragon Lady has a question for us. Any possibility that your travels will bring you to Ontario, Canada? There have been many reports of sightings in the 
I'm going to mispronounce this, guys. I'm sorry. I'm going to try. Temiskaming, Temiskaming, North Bay area, as well as around the Great Lakes. Apologies if I butchered that pronunciation. Yeah, I mean, possibly. I don't know. Um, I I haven't, like, had a really compelling case come my way, or I don't know too many people in Ontario. I know it's similar habitat to some of the places in the U.S. section of the Great Lakes, the Midwest, like northern Minnesota. I've heard a lot of stories out of there for a while. The Upper Peninsula of Michigan that's like right across from Canada and Ontario. So I guess if I had something or I, you know, had something I found compelling, I know there's a story of what is the old yellow top from Northern Ontario. That's an interesting case, but obviously that's more of a historical older story, but uh, you know, there's, I'd love to go to a lot of places, but sometimes if there's not a direct case or something that I can kind of relate to, um, you know, and, and Canada being a different country, obviously there's a bunch of different complications there with that. Uh, as we kind of saw as we were in British Columbia in Canada this past year. Interesting. Yeah, we. I feel like you get a lot of those questions here too. Like, are you coming to this place? Are you yeah, right. Place? Which I love. It's it's, it's cool. So cool. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'd love to go everywhere if I could, obviously, but uh, yeah. gotta do what's realistic, <laughs> and I've got to like set an amount of places I can go in a year that's realistic, uh, and you know, I always try to do as many as I can. Um, and now that I'm working on a different series as well, that changes the dynamic a little bit. So, yeah. Do you want to talk about the new series at all tonight? Yeah, I could mention it for sure. Yeah. Um, Do you want to give an overview of kind of what we've got coming up? Sure. Yeah. So we talked about it a little bit on the Kickstarter, uh, launch party last week, I believe. No, it wasn't last week, two weeks ago, almost at this point. And, um, it's, it's, the series is called strange places. And it basically encapsulates a lot of different stuff. It's going to be, oh gosh, just all sorts of stuff. A lot of it's not even cryptid, not even paranormal related. Yeah, there you go. There's the Got graphic for that. Here. Yeah, I love it. Um, it's it basically it's it's going to be about history, uh, weird locations, strange regions, so stuff like Land Between the Lakes, the Bridgewater Triangle. Um, those are regional, and there may be specific locations that have certain episodes like. When I was in Louisiana now, I was covering abandoned forts along the Mississippi River. Um, So that'll be upcoming soon, along with stuff on the land between the lakes. But there's a lot of room for experimentation with this series, and it kind of will take me down some different paths, perhaps that, you know, one week it may be an area like the LBL, which is very known for obviously stuff like what you're into, Dogman and cult activity and a lot of weirdness in general high strangeness maybe and then another episode will be about forgotten pieces of history that again necessarily don't really have like a paranormal or or, or strange bend but i find them unusual and the fact that they're almost forgotten in in history so there's a lot of room for again i think just a variety in this series and i I think i really liked how open-ended it was so i think that'll be really cool to see kind of how that develops yeah because it can literally almost be about anything yeah, well, I was I was gonna say I'm excited to see you cover some non Bigfoot stuff because yeah. the Bigfoot stuff is great, but I've seen you do it for a long time, so I'm really excited right. to see you know that same level of expertise that you have in this stuff in another category. That's not a that's not a, a dig on the Bigfoot stuff. At no, all. I, 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 I I get what you're saying because I feel the same way. It's like in some of the Bigfoot episodes we do cover stuff like we'll cover Bridgewater Triangle. We had a whole thing about cults and you know the. F- murders in this forest you know because it's all kind of related to that sort of stuff but uh there's certain episodes that do cover other locations other things that are just you know when you're talking about a place like you got to mention this so i think it'll be cool to just kind of 
focus in a little bit more on those uh, those types of topics. Yeah. Do we do we have a release date we can share yet or no? Never mind. Um. Yeah. Get back to me on that. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking out loud. Like, have we announced that? No. I haven't I looked on my tra- on my uh, oh, calendar no, yet. I know we talked about it, but you know, I'll have to check with Adam on that. <laughs> stay stay tuned. Stay yes. Tuned. Very soon. I got to say, very very soon. So. Yeah. Before next year. Yes. <laughs> sure. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we have a very nice comment from Lauren Baker. Uh, the Bella Coola episode showed how hard you work to make a film. The interview with the First Nations man was unique. Thank you. Yeah, that was definitely a really interesting one. It was different than my usual approach, I guess, which I wanted to make sure I accurately kind of represented what the uh, the New Hulk nation there, who so graciously kind of welcomed me into their community for a few days. I wanted to make sure it was accurate to how they felt about the Sninik or Sasquatch or whatever you want to call it. There's, there's some differentiation even from their part on their folklore because that's their folklore. It's not mine. Um, but uh, yeah, I just tried to make it uh, as, as representative of that as I could without intruding and also adding my own spin on, you know, just visiting a place as magnificent as that. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely one of my favorites um, just in the last few months that we've had an opportunity to sit down like this and talk about, cause it was such a, such an honest and intimate look talking with someone who knows it's not someone on the internet saying, I looked this up and they said, it's right. American legend, you know, cause there's, there's plenty of that. There's a direct there, connection so. to the culture there. Yeah. That, that's what it was, I thought was really cool. And, and that's, you know, I had kind of had to earn their trust a little bit and say, no, this is how, you know, and, and the guy Jarrell, who I have an interview, I said, you know, hey, man, this is like you talk what you want to talk about. I'm not going to tell you what you can't. And then I'm not going to chop your, your you know, 15 minute interview down into 30 seconds like for a TV show. It's just going to be what you want to say is what you want to say. Yeah, I think that's really great. Have you had any further contact with that gentleman? I'm just curious. Just since uh, that video came out, I sent it to him and he basically said he thought it was awesome. And he's like, you're welcome back anytime. So. That's great. Uh, you know, hopefully that will mean be able to go back some point and and check out some more stuff in the area. Because my God, it was the, just the scenery alone is just you drive into that valley and you just can't believe what's around you. It's that ridiculous. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Um, Jeff Green has a question. Um, you were speaking earlier about people disappearing in the woods. Have you ever heard of a place in British Columbia in the eastern side of the Rockies that is supposed to be a human no-go area? This is not familiar to me. No, I have not heard of that. I know. I mean, I drove through that area when I was coming back from Alaska this summer. We drove through the um, in Alberta, uh, the, uh, the Banff, Banff National Park, Jasper National Park. Stunningly beautiful areas. It was a little bit smoky though from the forest fires, but we drove over and you're right next to the border of British Columbia. We drove into British Columbia to go hike near the base of Mount Robson, which is the most prominent peak in the Rocky Mountains. Not the tallest, it just means it's the one that has the most prominence, I guess, from the from the base of it to you know, visually. It's just a very stunning area. But no, I haven't heard of that. So I don't I don't know. I've never heard of that uh, in the eastern side of the Rockies, but you know, maybe some worth looking into yeah i was gonna say maybe mark that under warrants further investigation yeah yeah at least I, a cursory google kind of rundown yeah a few bookmarks oh yeah. man we do i uh really quickly i do want to shout out jeff's uh profile icon which are our listeners who check this out later um, on their podcasting platform of choice can't see, but it does appear to be from where I'm sitting uh, a Sasquatch silhouette walking in front of an American flag <laughs> into the woods. And I just think that's awesome. I love that. 
He's a and Facebook then, from Facebook too. That's awesome. Yeah. You don't see a lot of the Facebook people on here. Yeah, yeah. We have someone from Tokyo, Japan, actually. That's what I was about to say. We have Irene, Irene Akiko watching from Tokyo, Japan. Welcome, Irene. Hello. I wonder also, what time it is over there. It's probably, it's definitely already tomorrow over there. I think it is. Yeah, that's so cool. Welcome, Irene. Awesome Welcome, to see Welcome, Irene. So cool. Love it. I uh, took two semesters of Japanese in college, and I remember very, very little. Um, and I forgot where I was going with that, but it's, it's, you know, it's just funny, uh, not funny. It's so cool with the internet, just how like, we'll get, I know we have a lot of people to watch from the UK, Australia, all these other places that, you know, while we're out here, it's in the evening, right? It doesn't matter really which time zone you're in, in the U S you know, it's somewhere in the evening on a Sunday night. And these people are probably way in the morning or even in the next day and they're watching. It's just really cool to see people from all over the world like that. Yeah, I love it, dude. I love it. We we very much appreciate our entire audience, but definitely, uh, you know, special shout out to those of you who are up at whatever hours you are. The dedication, yeah. The dedication, man. Yeah, love it. <laughs> so this is something I'm really curious about um, because Port Chatham is kind of one of those notorious cases that floats around a lot. It's been sensationalized. Um, what was your take on that case before? you started this investigation versus after kind of going through the production process of this episode? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think it changed a whole lot um, because I kind of was already aware of the story. I, you know, I thought it was just one of those things that face value, it just seemed a little too good to be true. The idea of there's a story about killer Bigfoots murdering people in some area. I just always thought that kind of didn't make sense. And uh, from very early on gaining awareness about that case, I, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to know Larry Beans Baxter for quite a few years before, you know, before this episode, of course, and I read his book, which I have on my bookshelf. I don't think I have it here next to me. Uh, otherwise, I would totally show it. But it's uh, like Abandon the History and Horror of Port Chatham, Alaska. I believe that's the title of the book. It's a great read. And it talks about some of the, the story and the reality behind it, as well as some of Beans' personal experience while going out there on the, his, his various expeditions. But it kind of says that you know, there, there probably were some legitimate sightings of these creatures because, I mean, that area seems like it's great habitat. Because I think the problem with the Port Chatham story is that it was stuck between two, two, like a rock and a hard place, right? So the rock was Bigfoot's killed people and that's why the town was abandoned. Like there's no other reason. And the hard place was the town was abandoned. There was never any Bigfoot. That's all total bunk. It was just abandoned for X, Y reasons, number of reasons, right? I personally think the truth is somewhere more in the middle, you know, that this is an area of great habitat where the, you know, we know there's sightings on, along the rest of the Kenai Peninsula. So why not Port Chatham? And the natives who were there, they talked about it. They had the story of the Nantinak, of course. Um, so it kind of just made sense that, yeah, that maybe there were sightings, but some of the th stories about the killings seemed a little exaggerated. But, you know, your, your people work in hunting, logging in these kind of, tough environments they get killed a lot or die because of different reasons you know machinery falls on your equipment but if you look at the way the town was abandoned it's not like there was just it was a booming place and then all of a sudden a year like a, a week later everyone just picked packed their bags and abandoned it was a much more gradual abandonment of the town as i think beans lays out in his book and the story is the family that owned the big cannery there it burned down they didn't rebuild it that was a huge economic incentive for the whole community uh, and just that type of lifestyle, that hard lifestyle that there was, there was lots of other communities, even near area A, there was a community that existed at one point that is now completely gone. It doesn't exist. You know, then there wasn't stories 
about Bigfoot's killing people is the reason why it was abandoned. It was just economically, Alaska started booming, I think, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s with the oil and gas industry. So people were like, hey, it's a lot, probably a lot more comfortable to go get a job in Anchorage, work for Shell or something, or go to Valdez and work on you know the oil kind of industry or whatever, Anchorage, Juneau, when Alaska was getting developed. And it is to live a very tough life in this very isolated location, canning fish or just logging. It just, I think it was just those, the economic reasons, personally, I think economic reasons were the reason that town was abandoned. I don't think it was related to killer Sasquatches. Again, that maybe was part of it. Like maybe there were sightings going on, but I don't think that that was the entire reason why it was abandoned. Uh, and I think Beans talked about it in the episode because it's a, like a ghost town. You have a lot of these stories of ghost towns across America. It's a very romantic idea, whether it's in the South or especially in the West. You know, the mining, resource extraction, the resources dry up and the towns just die out. People just gradually leave because there's nothing left for them there. This was a very different case where it just kind of seemed like gradually it was abandoned. And then there was this, excuse me, there was this Bigfoot element that got introduced at some point. But uh, so yeah, I think the truth is always somewhere usually more in the middle. And I think I that's kind of how, that. yeah, it's kind of how I felt from before I did this episode, and I wanted to kind of convey my skepticism. And then, of course, you have you know, a show like the Alaskan Killer Bigfoot stuff that was just so ridiculously uh, fake and just horrible. And uh, you know, Beans is somebody that was directly involved with that, and he can tell you about his experiences when they tried to get him on that show and how they kind of basically just ran with his research and uh, you know wanted to give him like a hundred bucks for it or something and you know, kind of just went in the direction they went. So, and I'm not trashing it. I'm just saying, I think that Port Chatham case has just become sensationalized. And it's one yeah. of those famous stories that just kind of, it's a really attractive idea. Like, oh, Bigfoot's killing people in this town. That's why it was abandoned. It's a, and it becomes almost that urban legend status. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, maybe those sightings fed into that fever pitch of people getting out of town and like this is happening this is happening and also there's monsters you know right right we don't know i mean i i would i know heather had talked to some people from one of the villages nan wallach back when we were in alaska they were trying to set something up about how they felt about that story and even i had somebody that i I was told about whose grandmother lived at port chatham and then you know they said there were sightings of creatures but that wasn't really the the reason the town was abandoned. It was abandoned like many other towns all along coastal Alaska were abandoned because there was an economic reason. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, the, you can't underestimate the power of the urban legend. It's it's amazing. It's, it's really interesting looking into that stuff because it just shows you how the human mind will take a story or something we don't understand and just try to rationalize it away. I mean, this is universal across every culture really and around the world we try to rationalize things we don't understand and then it kind of word of mouth it's like that telephone game things just change over time and details get added in where they maybe weren't yeah uh, and that's what's so tough when you're dealing with a case like that a lot of it's hearsay and even in the episode chook talked about how he grew up in homer which is basically the closest place to port chatham of any significant population he talked about you know cruising around that bay and his uncle said you know that's a village where they were getting killed by bigfoots and he's like, I had never heard of that before. And it was kind of a, you don't hear legends like that when it comes to Bigfoot. It's typically no. the, the Patterson-Gimlin kind of stuff. It's not killer, you know, creatures. So that urban legend, it's it's very powerful. And uh, how the word of mouth spreads and 
stories take off. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just uh, you, you have a tough time trying to get to the primary sources yeah. and the kind of the, the origins of those stories, I guess. Yeah. Good, good way to put it. It's a similar situation in the land between the lakes when you're looking into the massacre story, you know, right. just trying to cut through the muck and the sensationalization exactly. and the regurgitation of that muck to try to get to something tangible. And it's right. It's very difficult. Yeah. Uh, Irene, our friend from Japan has an interesting, um, anecdote to share with us. And I, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned this before we reach the end of the, the, uh, show tonight but she says we have a form of bigfoot but there is no written form about it it's called the hebegon um, i've heard of that yeah have you okay and irene even provides the uh characters for it which i believe are in katakana but uh is the japanese equivalent of the north american bigfoot or the himalayan yeti sightings have been reported since the 1970s around mount hiba in the hiroshima prefecture she goes on to explain that uh hiroshima of course had the <laughs> atomic bomb so they were saying that it created a monster or something happened after the atomic bomb that's very that's interesting. interesting see that's that's a really another interesting example of that kind of folklore yeah something an event obviously you've got uh, you know people are fans of kaiju and, and godzilla like that's that kind of you know the story there with that but that's really interesting i've never heard of that angle with the hebagon i've heard of that story before Neither. but I've never really looked into it uh, into Japan. She explains that Hibigon is a form of. She gave us so much good information. Yeah, here. that's really fascinating. This is awesome. I actually screen capped this whole thing. Um, Hibigon is a form of spirit or yokai, meaning meddling spirit that's up to no good, but there's no cool. literature on it, so I can study it. Thank you for oh, sharing man. that, Irene. There's that a lot of fascinating so stories cool. from Japan. Just the folklore and the history there. There's so much there. Yeah, for sure. There's there's a lot. Thanks for sharing that, Irene. That's, that's thank really you, awesome. Irene. Yeah, such a cool cool thing to be able to tag onto this very interesting conversation we've been having um let's see metallica 4567 asks alex have you researched or been to ape canyon i have uh, i guess i've kind of looked into it but nothing too much just your cursory search i've not been there but i do know mark marcel who is mr ape canyon himself quite well and he has rediscovered that site literally both the cabin and the mine site but um, yeah, there there may be some stuff about Ape in the future. I cannot confirm or deny. We'll just we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely on the list of places we would like to go. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> well, speaking of places, um, Chris Honholtz mentioned this while we were talking about Japan. But a new STM on location film? Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's go to Japan. Let's get right. It. Yeah, right. And let's... good to see you, Chris. I've been talking to him a little bit on Instagram. Uh, oh, awesome. Cool to see you here, man that's yeah i'm down to uh i'm down to go japan sounds great yeah i would love that absolutely take it international always wanted to go to japan stm international oh yeah. that sounds cool i want to pitch that to just that seth I yeah have right idea. right right stm international okay great what is it i don't know we need a huge budget yeah <laughs> <laughs> be big <laughs> gonna be big well that brings us to the conclusion of my notes and i believe if I've missed any audience questions, as always, folks, I apologize for that. But do you have any uh, any closing thoughts on this one for us, Alex? Because again, this is a big episode, so I feel yeah. like this has been a discussion that's a long time coming. Well, I don't just it, you know, it was something that I had planned for a while. It was kind of it's funny because it was the last. Well, it's not funny, but it's the it's the last episode from my Alaska adventure from last year. Which, I mean, out of that month and a half I was on the road, it, we have what, three or four Beyond the Trails, and then the entire Dark Coast series. So there was a lot that happened in that one trip. And this was one I had planned beforehand. 
just, hey, I want to do stuff on the poor Chatham thing. And that gradually then evolved into, oh, it's going to be about the Kenai Peninsula itself. And then the Les Stroud interview happened way later. That was never planned to be part of it. I was mostly going to cover the Port Chatham thing. We tried to go to Port Chatham, Beans and I, but the problem with that is, uh, as was mentioned in the episode, it's a, it's a long journey. It's like a five or six hour boat ride from uh, Homer to get there. It's pretty expensive and it's private property. So the, there's a you have to deal with the English Bay Company, I believe, that owns it. And they're owned by the native, uh, one of the tribes there. And they don't really give it a lot of permits and they already have for some shows that we're filming there. So uh, we kind of just didn't even try to really go down that route. We would, I would have loved to, obviously, but um, it was cool. Cause yeah, like the most common question we get when it comes to area A is uh, that, uh, you know, hey, is this poor Chatham? And it's like, nope, it's not. It's a similar habitat. And that's what I kind of, I tried to stress in the episode you have the Port Chatham location, you have the location of Les Stroud's incident, you have Area A, you have all these different places along the Kenai Peninsula that are, it's the same habitat. You take a picture of one of them and show up to, you know, hold it up to the next one and they look the same because there are these extremely remote areas where basically nobody lives that are just untapped kind of wilderness regions that have never really been tamed. Sure, Port Chatham existed for a while, but nature has reclaimed that area. You know, some of those cabins we found up at Area A, like nature has basically started reclaiming those. Mm-hmm. Uh, human presence there is very minimal. I think that's the point. This area is still really wild, and it basically has been forever, and I think it will be for a while. I mean, I don't see anybody rushing to go live out in Port Chatham again. You know, there's there's people living in different areas. So I think that was kind of the, the point about that, that whole Kenai Peninsula area. Yeah. I think you did a great job of portraying that in the episode. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know from looking at comments and just – feedback we've gotten on the show here tonight our, our viewers agree with you so another yeah, another job well done that. my friend <laughs> thank you thank you yeah great to see everybody uh in the chat here a lot of a lot of awesome comments and appreciate everybody and uh, so cool to see people from all over the world yeah thank you guys so much i was gonna like we always get great comments and questions but i had a lot of had a lot of fun tonight so thank you guys very very much um, be sure to tune in Wednesday. Uh, we will be back on our normal schedule for this show next week. Uh, you will be able to catch the audio version of this show sometime within the next 24 to 48 hours on your favorite podcasting platform. And until then, we'll see you next time. Take it easy, guys. You've been listening to the Small Town Monsters Broadcasting Network. If you enjoyed this show, consider giving it a like, review, rating, or sharing it with a friend. And be sure to visit smalltownmonsters.com for more info about this and other STM projects.